Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. And today is Saturday, of course, October 15th. I can't believe there's only two and a half months left this year, and it's shot. If the world doesn't end next year, we're going to have a lot of people in Christian identity with egg all over their faces. Tonight I'm going to present a paper I wrote several years ago. It was the really, I think, it was probably the first long historical essay I wrote. I might be wrong. My Phoenician's paper may have been first. This is the race of Genesis 10. This is a lengthy paper which describes the nature and the historicity of the Genesis 10 nations of the Bible. It's not a complete exposition. I could probably write 1,700 pages and research this paper for many years. It, it's a long story, right? This is a paper that presents a biblical Weltanschauung, I'm probably butchering that word, of, of white origins and history. We are only going to travel the history of this planet once. There are no second chances. we got to get it right. We have one history, one Bible, and one trek from the Garden of Eden to the gathering of the wheat. If we find not the foundations of our race in Genesis chapter 10, then our history, our Bible, is absolutely unreliable, and we are mired in futility with no purpose for living and no record of our origins, and obviously no hope of a future, because we, the, the greatest race the world has ever known by far, with, with by far the most outstanding achievements, are currently letting ourselves be overrun with squat monsters. There must be a reason for it. I often began oral examinations of Genesis chapter 10 by quoting, or I'm sorry, oral explanations of Genesis chapter 10 by quoting Epictetus. This quote borrowed from the opening pages of Thayer's Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, where he says, in Greek, the beginning of learning is the investigation of names, and how I must agree with Epictetus. The chronology of the Greek Septuagint translation of the Bible is certainly much more reliable than a Masoretic text. And according to many chronologists, for instance, Adam Rutherford, from that source, the date of the flood of Noah may be fixed at around 3245 B.C. I would not think that that date could be arrived at exactly, but that puts us in the correct time frame for the rise of Western civilization in context with archaeologists and anthropologists. I would support that Genesis chapter 10 is a snapshot, a profile of those tribes of which our race, the family of Noah, first blossomed into in the first few centuries after the deluge. I would think that 5,000 years ago, one would find no true Aryan or Caucasian civilization outside of these Genesis chapter 10 people, and that all of these people are indeed Aryan or Caucasian. They are all white. Of course, it cannot be discounted 
that during the nearly 1,800 years of biblical timeline before the deluge, some Adamic groups or individuals may indeed have wandered off, departing from the land of the flood and in that manner escaping destruction. Yet any of these have no definite history which is known to us today. No civilizations arose from them. It is certainly no mistake, as it may be made evident here, that so many of the tribes listed in Genesis 10 are found with names so similar to those gleaned from the earliest secular records of our race. Although it is frustrating that some of the Genesis 10 people seem to have vanished at an early time, too early to be identified in secular records uncovered thus far, that I have been able to access anyway, Surely enough of these peoples may be identified that one may see the truth of these words concerning Genesis chapter 10 fully demonstrated. I would like to quote Acts chapter 17, verse 26. Paul, speaking of God, has made of one blood, and the word blood is added to the text, all nations of men for to dwell upon all the face of the earth and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. And Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, which Acts 17, 26 is clearly a reference to, when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. Scripture must always be understood within the context of the Scripture. And so, Acts 17.26 must be viewed through the filter provided at Deuteronomy 32.8. Even most Bible cross-references relate these two verses. Here it should become evident that whenever the Bible discusses the nations, it intends only those nations descended from Noah, listed in Genesis chapter 10. And originally, all those nations were of one and the same race. An example of the times before appointed in relation to the Genesis chapter 10 nations is found in Jeremiah 46.17, where the implication is that Egypt was finished as a nation. And although in Roman times, the Greeks in Egypt maintained a high level of civilization for several centuries, history surely proves Jeremiah correct concerning the Egyptians themselves. Another example lies in Daniel chapter 2, and the vision of a succession of world empires given there, along with the parallel vision described in Daniel chapter 7. Since these nations, as we shall see, were dispersed into a wide geographical area, Reading Deuteronomy 32.8 along with 2 Samuel 7.10 indicates that a good deal of land was reserved uninhabited by Yahweh to eventually be used by the children of Israel. It is also clear that this land is outside of Palestine, as 2 Samuel 7.10 insists. Ancient history and archaeology reveal that the Israelites eventually did settle much of Europe. Before one can understand the importance of the promise of preservation, often translated salvation, for Israel, uttered in many places in the Old Testament, one must understand the history and fate of the rest of these Genesis 10 nations of Adam, which are listed in this chapter. And here we will discuss them one at a time.
The Jupesites, Genesis chapter 10, verses 2 through 5. Gomer, difficult to document, the historian Josephus made the mistake of associating Gomer with the Celts, an error probably derived from an early name for them, from an early name for the Celts, which was Kimeroi, and many of his copyists and many modern commentators on the Bible have followed this same mistake, which is based solely upon a phonetic similarity, that the Celts actually sprang from a portion of the children of Israel deported by the Assyrians is evident from many factors, including their late 7th century B.C. appearance in history, their location today, and their role in history, in fulfillment of many of the prophecies concerning the deported Israelites of the Old Testament, which is a topic beyond the scope of this discussion. Simply note that the Galatians of Paul's epistle are Celts, they are descendants of the Kimeroi, and Paul certainly was writing to Israelites, which the contents of that epistle proves. By contrast, in Ezekiel chapter 38, Gomer is allied with all of those who are, in, who are in opposition to the children of Israel. Which makes it easy to accept the Jew author Kostler's statements concerning Togarma, which we will outline shortly. Some commentators feel that Hosea is taking a wife of Gomer, named Gomer, I'm sorry, Hosea chapter 1 verse 3, is an indication that Gomer was one of the tribes that the Israelites were dispersed among after their deportation by the Assyrians. This hypothesis is quite credible, though I have not been able to positively identify any tribe of the secular records. And when I say, in, in this context of Genesis chapter 10, when I talk about the secular records, I'm talking about all of the inscriptions of ancient Assyria, of ancient Babylon, the ancient Hittite inscriptions, the ancient Egyptian inscriptions, the Bible itself, which we have available to us today, which are actually quite numerous, and, and which actually describe in great detail the world known to the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Hittites. And I also talk about the earliest Greek poetry, so that's what I mean when I discuss the secular records. Gomer is not found in Assyrian inscriptions. The mistake Josephus made with the Kimeroi can be shown. It can be established that the Qumri, the Assyrian name for the children of Israel, whom the Assyrians had deported into northern Mesopotamia, that is the source for the name Kimroi or Kimerians. The name Kumri appears in that context in the Assyrian inscriptions in the 7th century BC when the Assyrians are deporting the children of Israel. When the Kumri invade Anatolia, the Greeks called them Kimroi because at the time Akkadian was the lingua franca. So the Greeks learned their name in Akkadian from the Assyrians, who were the eastern power at the time. The sons of Gomer, Genesis 
Arthur Kosler, a Jew who writes from a Jewish perspective, claims that Togarma is the common ancestor of the Uyghur, Dersu, Avars, Huns, Basili, Tarniak, Khazar, Zagora, Bulgars, and Sabir. On page 72 of his book, The Thirteenth Tribe, I think Kosler took that way too far, and so did the medieval rabbis. In biblical prophecy, it is seen that along with Gomer, Gomer, Togarma is allied against the children of Israel in the last days at Ezekiel 38.6, where he is placed in the far north and surely among the Asiatic hordes of the former Soviet Union. Rissath, or Dithath, the R and a D often being confused in Masoretic Hebrew letters, is unmentioned elsewhere in the Bible except for a copy of Genesis 10 found in 1 Chronicles. Ashkenaz, however, may be more easily identified. Mentioned at Jeremiah 51.27, along with Ararat and Mini, both regions being now a part of modern Armenia, Ashkenaz is there shown to be not far from the ancient land of the Khazars, a once great empire, and of which modern Kazakhstan is a remnant. In the first millennium AD, many of the Edomites and other Canaanites who had adopted Judaism migrated to Khazaria. They did that mostly after the Roman world adopted Christianity. And the Khazars, beginning with their king, had converted to Judaism. The Jews being absorbed into the general population, these people adopted the name Ashkenaz or Ashkenazi Jews, for Ashkenaz was recognized by the Edomite Jews and their rabbis as an ancestor of the original Caucasian population of the area. Now, if we separate claims of the medieval Jews whom Kostler quoted from the biblical account and the archaeological records, there is much less that can be used to identify these people with certainty. It is not clear from any original records that Kostler, Heinrich Gretz, who wrote these things over a hundred years before him, or any of the older Jews that they quote are fully correct. The Aryan people of the steppe, whom the Edomite Jews mingled with in Khazaria, certainly had a Mesopotamian origin, but originally could have been from one or more of the Jepetite or Shemite tribes. Magog, Tubal, and Mesek, Genesis 10-2. Over 1,500 years before the Germanic Rus conquered the land which bears their name today, Ezekiel wrote of Ross as the Septuagint has it, or Rosh, as the Masoretic text has it, being the leader or prince of Gog, Meshech, and Tubal. Ezekiel chapter 38. This is by no means a coincidence, but rather a clear manifestation of the divine inspiration of the prophet. In light of the relationship which the Rus were to have with Magog, Meshech, and Tubal, which Ezekiel chapter 38 illustrates, Herodotus, the Greek historian, mentions two tribes among those under Persian dominion, the Moschi and the Tabani. In a convenient geographic location that without stretching the imagination, we may associate these ancient Jepethites with the dwellers around the Russian cities of, once we studied the origin of their names as, and identified them as having a tribal origin, 
Moscow, and Tobolsk. Strabo discussed the Moschi and the Tabarni in his 11th book and relates that land formerly held by the Moschi, whom he placed just south of Colchis in the Caucasus Mountains, was encroached upon by the Colchians, Armenians, and Iberians. The Moschi were evidently driven north. Of course, the Iberians are Hebrews, a part of the Scythians, by all accounts, who stayed put rather than moving northward through the Caucasus or westward through Anatolia with their fellow tribesmen. And Armenia can actually be shown to be a Hebrew word meaning mountain parts. Whoever Magog may have been in prehistoric times, we can be certain that his descendants are found among these gigantic, which is what Gog means, mixed masses of Caucasian, Mongol, Chinese, whatever blood, who are found inhabiting much of Asiatic Russia today, the Asiatic Russia that the Khazars also were a part of. In my Revelation presentation, I demonstrated that Magog was used in certain prophecies that we see the Edomite Jews later fulfill. That's a totally different topic. Mongol and Tibet, homes of anciently mixed races with a clear Adamic cultural influence may be guessed. Professor L.A. Waddell, who wrote in the first quarter of the 20th century, I believe at Oxford University, produced several books which illustrated the Aryan, the Aryan origin of the cultures in India and Tibet. The contemporary Russian archaeologist, S.A. Grigoriev, in papers such as the Sintasha Culture and some questions of Indo-European origins, I have a copy of this linked to a PDF in the bottom of the fourth part of my German origins papers on Christogenia. This archaeologist, in this paper, this archaeologist, Grigoriev, in this paper and other works, has demonstrated that the archaeological remains of the steppe did not come from the people generally known as the Scythians, the earliest archaeological remains. Rather, they came from forerunners of the Scythians. Grigoriev states that the Scythian migration through Iran, the Near East, and the Caucasus took place at the beginning of the Iron Age. I would almost agree with that. I would place it at the end of the Iron Age. He also shows that the earlier Sintashta people, the people of the earlier steppe cultures, also originally came from the regions of Syria and Anatolia. Therefore, the archaeological record shows that people had been migrating from out of the biblical world and into the steppe. And this is fairly consistent with the biblical narrative and what we may be able to glean from our early historical records. Madai, Genesis 10.2. Madai, M-A-D-A-I, is identifiable with the Medes, which is evident simply by checking both terms 
in Strong's Concordance. The Greeks wrote Mede as Medus, the Eta in English being rendered either by an A or an E. Herodotus wrote that these Medes were anciently called by all people Arians. Although it is more likely that the term Aryan was rather used by Israelites who once sojourned in Media, we see that the Assyrians moved the children of Israel to the cities of the Medes. Since the term Arya appears to mean in Hebrew, mountain of Yahweh, something which the Israelites were often called, for instance in Daniel 2.45. And the Greeks had Israelite tribes in Media probably confused with actual Medes. There is an assumption that the word Aryan comes from a Sanskrit word for noble. However, I would assert that Sanskrit followed much later and not sooner. Herodotus, in any case, regarded the Medes as the first people called Aryans. The Medes... Fulfilling a destiny in history which the Hebrew prophets had already assigned to Medai, and this is very clear in many prophecies, for instance, Isaiah chapter 21, Jeremiah chapter 25, and chapter 51, and Daniel chapter 8, there should be no doubt of this identification. There are good indications that the Medes are found in the Slavs of today. The Slavs may be traced to a people that the Romans and Greeks both called Saromatahi, or Sarmatians. Diodorus Siculus, discussing certain Sake, or Scythian kings, states that it was by these kings that many of the conquered peoples, meaning conquered by the Scythians, were removed to other homes. And two of these became very great colonies. The one was composed of Assyrians and was removed to the land between Paphlagonia and Pontus, Paphlagonia and Pontus, which is part of modern-day Turkey along the southern shore of the Black Sea. And the other was drawn from Media and planted along the Tanase, a river north of the Caucasus Mountains, which empties into the Black Sea from the northeast. I believe it's called the Don today. A river... I'm sorry. It's people, the people of the second colony, which the Scythians transplanted north of the Black Sea from Media, from the people of the Medes. It's people receiving the name Soromatahi, or Sarmatians. Many years later, this people became powerful and ravaged a large part of Scythia. That's Theodore Siculus, Book 2, Chapter 43. And with this, there being so many Slavs among the Germanic peoples today, we have the realization of the fulfillment of Genesis 9.27, which I shall discuss shortly. Javan, Genesis 10.2. Javan, J-A-V-A-N in the King James Bible. Javan is also identified by Strong in his concordance with the Ionian Greeks, as the Septuagint translators in circa 300 B.C. also seem to do, rendering the Hebrew word as Yoan or Iowan. This is not out of fancy. 
for on the Behistun rock and other Eastern inscriptions, the Ionian Greeks are called by the Persians Yavana, Yavana, just like Javan, the J being a Y, representing the iota in ancient Hebrew, Y-A-V-A-N-A. That is what the King James writers would write as Javan. And Sir Henry, Sir Henry Rawlinson wrote Ionians there in his famous translation of that inscription. And the Persian inscriptions using Yavana are indeed describing the Ionian Greeks. Other Persian inscriptions assure the same connection. These Ionians once inhabited the coasts of Anatolia, which we know as modern-day Turkey, and many of its islands. That land was called, at one time, Ionia generally. They were also the founders and the principal inhabitants of Athens. Of the sons of Javan, listed in Genesis 10.4, all of them are identified with the sea trade. With Tyre, in Ezekiel chapter 27, much later than Genesis chapter 10, we see Elisha mentioned in 27.7, Tarshish in 27.12, Kittim in 27.6 in the Septuagint, not in the King James. In Ezekiel chapter 27, uh, I'm sorry, in Genesis chapter 10, Dodanum is a mistake by Hebrew copyists, for Roganum. In Ezekiel 27.15, where the King James Version, the Masoretic text, has Dedan, we, we, we read Rodians in the Septuagint. The Rodanum are the Rodians, the people of the island of Rhodes, the Greeks of Rhodes. Elisha and Kittim are both identified with Cyprus with several varying spellings of these names, actually found in ancient inscriptions. Kittim is the word for Cyprus throughout the Hebrew prophets. The Rodanum, or the Greeks of Rhodes, is identified in the Septuagint. Tarshish, another son of Javan, is a region of southern Spain known historically as Tartessus. The Ionians, or Javan, are connected with the Tyrian sea trade also at Ezekiel 27, verses 13 and 19, mentioned along with the Hebrew tribe of Dan. For a portion of that tribe settled Greece from Egypt at a very early time, and they were known as Danans. We see in the King James Version of Ezekiel 27:19, Dan also and Javan going to and fro occupied in thy fairs, brought iron, cassia, and calamus, and were in thy market. I'm sorry, bright iron, cassia, and calamus were in thy market. This is a clear reference to the Dan and Greeks and the Ionian Greeks. Now, newer Bible versions write Vedan, V-E-D-A-N. That's a word which exists nowhere else. And they're very dishonest about it. For the Hebrew construction actually means and Dan, 
the Vav preceding the name Dan. They do this in order to further obfuscate history and protect their errant identification of ancient Israelites with Jews. The identification of the tribe of Dan in Greece blows the cover off the false assumptions of Jewish identity. Archaeology, and I have a paper on Christogenia, a whole separate paper, classical records in Dorian and Dan and Greeks, which show that the Mycenaean culture of the Peloponnesus and the Dan and Greeks, they were the architects of Mycenaean Greece, was shared with the tribe of Dan in Palestine. Archaeology proves that. The Jews hate to admit it and make up all sorts of stories excusing it. The ships of Tarshish are mentioned in Kings, Chronicles, Psalms, and several of the prophets. Although a separate and quite lengthy topic, it can be convincingly demonstrated that the Phoenicians of Tyre, those Phoenicians who sailed in the ships of Tarshish and elsewhere, they were Israelites. They were called Phoenicians by the Greeks. And that can be demonstrated right from the pages of the Bible with much evidence also added by secular historians. Carthage was a Phoenician colony of Tyre. And the Carthaginians eventually controlled the land we call Spain today, at one time called Iberia, which is Hebrew or Eber land, just as the land south of the Caucasus Mountains, where the deported Israelites much later were first settled, and where they became known as Scythians, that was also called Iberia, even in Roman times. Theodorus Siculus, Book 25, discusses wars between the Carthaginian Hamilcar Barca and the Iberians and Tartesians in the 3rd century B.C. Herodotus, in his Book 4, writing about a period much earlier than his own, a period which predates the Trojan War, and speaking of Tartessus in southern Spain, says, and I quote from Rawlinson's translation, This trading town was in those days a virgin port, unfrequented by the, mergen, by the merchants. The Trojan War was 200 years before King Solomon's famous ships. So Herodotus, in this case, surely seems to have been accurate, and his calling Tartessus a trading town illuminates the scriptural record. In their Greek-English lexicon, Liddell and Scott readily identify Tartessus as the Tarshish of Scripture. Tiris, mentioned in Genesis 10-2. Tiris is, in Strong's Hebrew spelling, Cyrus, T-H-I-Y-R-A-C. Mentioned nowhere else in the Bible except in the copy of Genesis chapter 10 found at 1 Chronicles chapter 1, many writers have made perfect etymological and ethnographical sense in connecting these people to the Thracians, north of Greece. In later history, the land of Thrace is instead occupied by Greeks, 
as Macedonians and Thessalians, and Strabo was confused as to whether one tribe in the area, the Treres, are Chimerians or Celts, or Thracians. The Thracians were not considered Greeks, but rather barbarians, and had colonies in Asia, and also with the Aneti, were said to have settled around the area around Venice. The Phrygians, the Phrygians of Anatolia, the, the, the Phrygians might be recognized from the stories concerning King Midas. King Midas was the man who, who it was said everything he touched turned to gold. He was the last Phrygian king, according to the historical records. The Phrygians of Anatolia are said to be Thracians, a colony from Thrace. It may be that the Phrygians or the Thracians were the first mound or tumuli builders of early Europe. Modern anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians often discuss the Sea Peoples, whom they usually claim were Caucasians who came from the Asian area and invaded the Mediterranean. The true origin of the Sea Peoples are as the Japhethites. of Genesis chapter 10, who were spread along the waterways from the Caspian and Black Seas to as far west as Spain and at a very early time. Contrast Genesis 10.5 with verses 20 and 31, where the Japhethites were specifically assigned the isles or coastlands, but not the Hamites or the Shemites. Although later the Hamitic Philistines also plied the waves, and only after a considerable time were these peoples rivaled at sea by the Israelite Phoenicians. There is a certain prophecy at Genesis 9.27 which reads, God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Without discussing the part concerning Canaan, which I will discuss briefly here, it is evident that Yahweh surely did enlarge Japheth. For these tribes were spread out over a great area along the southern coasts and eastern borderlands of Europe. Although a separate lengthy topic, once it is realized that not only the Phoenicians of Tyre, Sidon, Byblos, Northern Africa, the Greek and Italian islands, Spain and Britain, but also the Celtic and Germanic peoples and the Trojans and Illyrians and Parthians, among others, were all descendants of the Shemitic Israelites, most of whom had moved into Europe, along with other Shemites such as the Lydians. Only then may the oracle of Genesis 9.27 be understood and made manifest and appreciated. Aside from the peoples of Meshech and Tubal, having been conquered by and living among the Germanic Rus, and we see here that the Slavic tongue prevailed in Russia, and the colony of the Medes, which were moved by the Israelite Scythians to the Tanais, which later became known as Sarmatians, and later than that, also known as Slavs. These things already discussed above, 
The other Gepetsi tribes moved all along the Mediterranean coasts and into Europe, but they were never known as Slavs. The Dede and the Dasi are described by Strabo as being akin to the Thracians and having the same tongue, these inhabiting a great part of both sides of the lower Danube. Although Strabo considered everything north of the Danube as Germany, this particular area is historically Slavic. The Greek Ionians also made many settlements. The Ionians of Phocahia in Asia Minor were called by Herodotus the first of the Greeks who performed long voyages. And these alone founded Marseille on the coast of France, Menaka in Iberia, Elia in Italy, and many other colonies. The Etrurians, or Etruscans of Italy, descended from the Shemitic tribe of Lud, found first in Anatolia, the ancient Lydians, and I shall discuss that again below. Italy was settled by Ionian Greeks, as we see from Strabo as well. Italy was also settled by the Trojans, and especially Rome. The Ionians of Asia Minor, the Athenians who were also Ionians, and the Achaeans who were Danans, Israelites. All of this is found in Strabo's geography. With so many Slavs, along with the races of southern France and Italy among us today, Japheth certainly is dwelling in the tents of Shem unto this day. Yet we must remember this, that the earliest Adamic tribes had most likely entered Europe by 3000 B.C. Yet the earliest substantial writing we have from our European forebears outside of the Bible is not until circa 600 B.C. 2400 years of white presence, of Adamic white presence in Europe, and no written history. The Hamites, Genesis 10, verses 6 through 20. Before beginning a discussion of Cush, it is quite important to, to acquire an understanding of the word Ethiopian, as the Greeks called the Cushites. As the word Cush is often translated in our Bibles, and as we call the people found inhabiting the land, the ancient land of Cush in Africa today. They are about as Ethiopian as your average Negro is American. Our word Ethiopian comes from the Greek word Ahithiops, A-I-T-H-I-O-P-S, if I had to spell it in English which properly means shining face, glowing face, or perhaps even sunburnt face. And it was certainly not used by the earliest Greek writers to describe the naturally dark, the black races. There are several words in Greek to describe black, swart, or dark, which are often applied to people. Among those words are melis, kelahinus, pelis, and fahius. 
other words meaning dark, but are which are apparently never applied to people. Often, well, other words meaning dark, but are never applied to people, are abundant also. A word which is akin to ahithiops is ahithis, which the large ninth edition of Liddell and Scott defines as burnt, shining, or red-brown, reddish-brown. The 1996 revised supplement to this edition of Liddell and Scott's large lexicon inserts after burnt, quote, perhaps black or dark complexioned, unquote. And it amends to shining bronze-colored. The black definition I must reject. Red-brown describes a suntanned Caucasian and not a dark-skinned Negro who only gets blacker in the sun. It seems to me that the definition of these words have indeed, over time, been politically corrected. Other words related to ahithiops are ahithon, which means fiery or burning of metal, flashing or glittering. That does not describe Negroes. Ahitho, which is a verb, which means to light up or kindle. That vision does not describe Negroes. Ahithre means clear sky and fair weather. That word does not describe Negroes. The closest, ahithops, means fiery looking. Of metal, it means flashing. Of wine, it means sparkling. That word does not describe Negroes. Someone in the Greek anthologies, which are a very late and wide collection of Greek inscriptions and miscellaneous writings, mostly from well into the first millennium A.D. in the Byzantine period, once either translated or used ahisops as swart or dark. However, this is clearly contrary to the true spirit of the word's meaning when we examine all forms of the word. Applied to Cush, a white man, or his white descendants, ahithiops could only mean sunburnt, as in bright or brassy colored, which is something which happens only to Caucasians in the outdoors. And it is exactly what one may expect Cushites in a place like Ethiopia to look like. The Ethiopians were white. They were shining-faced. That's what Ahithiops means. Fiery-faced. If you've ever had a good sunburn, and I've had many, that's exactly what I look like when I look in the mirror. Moses fled Egypt, as recorded in Exodus chapter 2, and met with the tribe of the Midianites, descendants of Abraham and Keturah, as we see in Genesis chapter 25. 
from whom we took a, he took a wife. These Midianites lived in the land of Cush, as can be discerned from Numbers chapter 12. Abraham, in the land of Canaan, had originally sent his sons by Keturah eastward unto the east country, in Genesis 25, 6. And surely this east country is the land which is called Cush or Ethiopia, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 13. Wherever we see the word Ethiopia in the Bible, the original Hebrew word is Cush. Nimrod, in Genesis 10, the Cushite, he was a descendant of Cush, founded the first Adamic empire, Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 12, which evidently spread far and wide beyond Mesopotamia to where we have the Hindu Kush mountains of today. The river of Genesis 2.13 that compasses the whole land of Kush in Moses' time may have been the Indus River, if not some other lost river, if it is evident that the events which caused the deluge of Noah may have changed the geography of the area. Moses certainly did not go to Ethiopia in Africa for his wife, as there are no Midianites ever spoken of as being there. Later passages in the scripture concerning Jethro and the Midianites places them soundly in Arabia which would have been called the land of Cush because it was part of Nimrod's first empire. In Hesiod's Theogony, probably written in the 7th century B.C., and, and let me say that I had originally dated it to the 8th century B.C. in this paper, but it's the 7th. It can be demonstrated. I have better information now. Memnon the legendary king of the Ethiopians was the son of Eos, or Light. Hesiod's Theogony is basically a genealogy of the gods and goddesses and the races said to sprung from them, and the early heroes said to spring from them. In the play, or, or I'm sorry, in the poem Ahithiopis, or Ethiopians, right, Ethiopia, by Artinus of Miletus, written as a sequel to Homer's Iliad, Memnon, the Ethiopian, aided the Trojans in their war against the Greeks, only to be slain by Achilles. Herodotus mentions the Ethiopians of Asia, and although he describes black and woolly-haired so-called Ethiopians, I will refer to Diodorus Siculus for a more complete picture shortly. Herodotus calls Susa, the famed capital city of the Persian Empire. Per the Persian Empire actually had three capitals, Susa, Persepolis, and Ecbatana. Herodotus calls Susa the city of Memnon, since the Greeks believed that Memnon had founded that city. There being abundant proof 
that the Persians of the Greek histories were absolutely white, it cannot be imagined that they thought Memnon to be black. Herodotus was writing at an already late time in Ethiopian history when the ancient nation below Egypt and Egypt itself had already been overrun with Nubians. That happened by the 7th century B.C. Herodotus was writing in the middle of the 5th century B.C. There was already plenty of black blood in Ethiopia and Egypt by that time. Theodore Siculus, he wrote up until about 30 B.C. Theodore Siculus, relating the tradition concerning Memnon, has Ethiopia in Asia sending aid to the Trojans in the Trojan War, which included Assyrians and men of Susiana, or Susa, Although Diodorus also records the claims of the Ethiopians of Africa that that place was the home of Memnon, among others, Apollodorus, famous Greek librarian, records the myth that Perseus, legendary founder of the Persians, married Andromeda, daughter of the Ethiopian king Cepheus and his wife, Cassipia, after rescuing her from a sea monster, an event which was said to have taken place at Joppa in Palestine, which Josephus, the Judean historian, also discusses. So the Greeks have many witnesses of an Ethiopia in Asia, in lands and in cities known to be inhabited by whites, and with people taking part in some of the first events recorded by the white poets of Europe, the Trojan War, the rescue of Andromeda by Persis. And the Hebrews have a Cush in a land which may surely be supposed to be the same as the Greek, the Cush of the East. Yet the Hebrew record is not much earlier than the events of the later Greeks, which the later Greeks were recording the Exodus and the death of Moses is circa 1450 B.C. The Trojan War is circa 1185 B.C. And as a third witness, we have a Kush, the Hindu Kush Mountains, on our modern maps not much further than where the Greek and Hebrew records tell us that the ancient district was situated. The Hebrews had two Ethiopias, one south of Egypt, I'm sorry, the, the Hebrews had two Cushes, one south of Egypt and one to the east. The Greeks had two Ethiopias, one south of Egypt and one to the east. In his book, The Lost Tribes and the Saxons of the East and the Saxons of the West, Dr. George Moore presents the viable theory that the name similar to Cush which are found in southern Russia, are derivative peoples of this biblical patriarch, Kosa, Koza, Khazars, and Cossacks. That's a postulation. It makes sense in some instances. Now to turn to the Kush or Ethiopia of Africa. In the first 11 chapters of his third book, Diodorus Siculus draws from much earlier historians, as he also did for whomever he wrote about, 
to describe the various peoples of African Ethiopia. And it is evident that those tribes contrast with one another quite starkly, quite starkly. The first Ethiopians he discusses are endowed with what we may consider a well-developed form of Western civilization. Diodorus states that they say that they were the first to be taught to honor the gods and to hold sacrifices and processions and festivals. They quote Homer in reference to themselves. They recount the unsuccessful invasions into their country by Cambyses and Semiramis. Semiramis is actually an Assyrian queen found to be named Shamu Ramat in the inscriptions. The invasion by Cambyses into Ethiopia was recorded by the historian Herodotus. And the Ethiopians claim that the Egyptians were originally Ethiopian colonists led by Osiris. The two types of their writing, like Egypt, popular or demotic and sacred or hieroglyphic, are described by Diodorus. And it is said that the sacred is common among the Ethiopians. Their priests were said to be very much like the Egyptian. They believed that their kings gained sovereignty by divine providence. Their laws and punishments were from custom, and they practiced the same flight of refuge, which the Greeks did, which was also a Hebrew custom, similar to the Hebrew Levitical cities of refuge. An Ethiopian king under Ptolemy was educated in Greece and studied philosophy. And aside from a few odd customs, there is no reason to believe that these Ethiopians, whose physical characteristics are not mentioned, and that's important, were anything but civilized and not much different from the rest of Western society. In stark contrast to those cultured Ethiopians, which Theodorus Siculus first discussed, beginning in the eighth paragraph of his, in the eighth chapter of his third book, I'm sorry, Theodorus says this, and I quote, but there are also a great many other tribes of the Ethiopians, and here it is apparent that like Phoenicia and other labels, Ethiopia had merely become a geographical designation rather than an ethnographical one. But there are also a great many other tribes of the Ethiopians, some of them dwelling in the land lying on both banks of the Nile and on the islands in the river, others inhabiting the neighboring country of Arabia, which is between the Nile and the Red Sea. That was considered part of Arabia by the Greeks. And others residing in the interior of Libya, which would be Sudan. The majority of them, and especially those who dwell along the river, are black in color and have flat noses and woolly hair. Here it is evident that Diodorus Siculus is describing the Nubians and the other wandering black tribes of the region. He continues, and I quote, As for their spirit, they are entirely savage and display the nature of a wild beast. 
and are as far removed as possible from human kindness to one another and cultivating none of the practices of civilized life, they present a striking contrast when considered in the light of our own customs, end of quote. So it is apparent here that if we do not have a white culture in Ethiopia in an era not long before Diodorus' own, then we certainly at least have the remnants of one. Ezekiel chapter 30 lists Ethiopia, or Cush, among all the mingled people. And all of this fits very well with the picture of a once Caucasian, but now adulterated Cush in that region. Of the sons of Cush, listed in Genesis 10.7, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, Sabtaka, and the sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan, not much will be said here. Some of these names appear again along with this, among the sons of Jotan, listed in Genesis chapter 10, verses 26 to 30, in both the Masoretic text and in the Septuagint. And this has caused confusion and speculation in attempts to identify these tribes. And even later in the Bible, confusion seems to exist, for which we may compare 1 Chronicles 1.9 and 1 Chronicles 32. Strabo wrote of Berenike, a Sabian city, together with Sabe, which he called a good-sized city, which were on the African side of the Red Sea in his 16th book. It can only be imagined that these peoples eventually mixing with the aliens had given us the many Negroid and Arab tribes of the region that we see in later history. Never has more confusion existed concerning race than concerning the ancient Egyptians. This is due mostly to Jewish encouragement of Negro so-called scholars, which began in the first half of the 20th century with the promotion of Negroes such as Marcus Garvey in the Jewish press. In the 1970s, the belief that the cultures of northern Africa belonged to Negroes began to be promoted in academic circles. Yet, over 200 years of European archaeology and anthropology insisted that ancient Egyptian culture was white. And the only question was, how white? Surely, Mitzraim, or Mizraim, Genesis 10.6, is the Old Testament Hebrew for Egypt everywhere the word appears. Egypt, or Ahiguptus, is the term used throughout Greek literature, and the land known as Egypt at that time was only the area around the Nile Delta and the Nile Valley along both banks of the river as far south as Elephantine. The early Greeks seem to have written very little about Egypt outside of Thebes and Heliopolis until the time of Herodotus. There is much to be said about early Egypt that is beyond the scope of this discussion, but warrants at least a mention. First, early Egypt 
actually consisted of several disparate cultures, some of them alien in nature, which were adverse to one another and were eventually amalgamated by force, and that was certainly not a good idea. The earliest higher culture of Egypt was linked by archaeologists and anthropologists to the Levant, but it may not be said that it was Adamic. The Pharaonic civilization in Egypt, the civilization of the pharaohs, appeared later and rather suddenly not long after 3000 BC, which is consistent with Septuagint chronology. This is where the Egypt of Mizraim begins. The archaeology of those early dynasties clearly reveals a people of high civilization and Aryan characteristics. They were white. Statues of the pharaohs often reveal men who would not be out of place in Dublin or Hamburg. However, once Upper and Lower Egypt were unified, and all of the disparate tribes brought under one government, Egyptian hymns include ideas of universalism, ecumenism, and even express the idea of separatism of races by color. And I will quote from that. I will quote from my source for that shortly. There is nothing new under the sun. There seems to have been actually two groups in early Egypt, centuries apart from each other, remembered as Hyksos. The first group little is known about, perhaps a noble Adamic race, probably Shemites and maybe even Hebrews, who most likely built the Great Pyramid. There is some ancient literature indicating that. The second group were Kenites, who invaded and occupied the Delta shortly before Joseph was sold into Egypt. During the time of Joseph, the pharaohs at Thebes were of the house of Shem. That can be established. As was the priesthood of On, Heliopolis, or Beth Shemesh. It was these Egyptians at Thebes whom Joseph was sold to as a slave. Beth Shemesh is a double entendre. It can mean either house of the sun, or it can mean house of the people of Shem in Paleo-Hebrew. The Greeks interpreted it to mean house of the sun, so that is the meaning of the name Heliopolis, or city of the sun. Later, Joseph, as vice-regent of Egypt, and with the help of the seven years' famine, drove the Kenites out of the delta for good. What follows are two views of race in ancient Egypt. And I'm quoting from a book of ancient inscriptions called Ancient Near Eastern Texts Relating to the Old Testament, James B. Pritchard's the editor. It was printed by Princeton University Press in 1969. From page 441, we see from the admonitions of Ipu Wur, the original of this inscription dated to approximately 2300 to 2050 B.C. And I quote, A man regards his son as his enemy. A man of character goes into mourning because of what has happened in the land. Foreigners have become people everywhere. To help us understand that passage, a footnote says, and I quote, 
The term men, humans, or people was used by Egyptians to designate themselves in contrast to their foreign neighbors who were not conceded to be real people. In other words, if you were an Egyptian, if you were not an Egyptian, you were not even a person. You were not even human. You were not even a man. Now, from a much later inscription, from page 366, from a document called A Hymn to Amon Re, the original of this inscription dated to the Egyptian Empire of approximately 1775 to 1575 B.C. And I quote, Atom, who made the people distinguish their nature, made their life and separated colors one from another. An introductory note to this hymn on page 365 says, Egypt's world position under her empire produced strong tendencies towards centralization and unification of Egyptian religion with universalism and with syncretism of the gods. Reading these entire poems, one may see that within f less than 500 years, ancient Egyptians went from not even recognizing aliens as people to being one big universalist ecumenical happy family. Rome and New America, and now America and Europe, have followed the same path to hell. Of the sons of Mitzrayim, Genesis 10.13, Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Nafushim, Naftuhim, I'm sorry, Pathrusim, Kazluhim, Philistine, and Kaftorim. These are all tribal and not really individuals' names. The Anamim are likely a people called the Anami mentioned in an 8th century B.C. cuneiform inscription. Naftuhim is apparently an Egyptian word which means people of the Delta and Patrusim, people of the Southern Land. The Philistine, or Philistines, had dwelt in the land of Kaftor before their own migration to Palestine. And Kaftor was very pro probably in Egypt for which we may see Amos 9.7, Deuteronomy 2.23, and Jeremiah 47.4. Certainly the Philistines were an Adamic race, which is shown in Zechariah 9.6. And some had surely migrated west with the children of Israel, which is revealed in Isaiah 11.14. Goliath was not actually a Philistine, but rather he was a mercenary in the Philistine army, one of the sons of Rapha, the Canaanite giant, for which see 1 Chronicles chapter 20, where the phrase the giant is in Hebrew, Ha-Rapha, the source of the Rephaim. 
There also should be noted an obscure entry in Herodotus in his second book where he says, Hence they, meaning the Egyptians, commonly called the pyramids after Felician, a shepherd who at that time fed his flocks about the place. Some suppose that this may be a memory of the ancient Philistines in Egypt and the first shepherd kings connecting the building of the Great Pyramid. It is conjectural, but the name had to come from somewhere. It's a very odd statement by Herodotus. The Ludim of the Egyptians are confused by the translators for, for the Lydians who were actually Shemites in Anatolia. So where it says Lydians at Jeremiah 46.9 and Ezekiel 35, speaking of Egyptians, it should be Ludim instead, L-U-D-I-M, and since these are the descendants of Ham and not Shem. The Ludim of Ham are also mentioned in Ezekiel 27.10 in connection with the trade of ancient Tyre. Foot, P-H-U-T, Genesis 10.6 was associated with Libya, though it is difficult to discern exactly why we see them mentioned in Nahum 3.9. In the AV, in the King James Version, and in the Septuagint, it was translated as Libya in Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 5, and 38.5, and in Jeremiah 46.9. The Lubim, and so we see the actual origin of the name Libya in this tribe, the Lubim, L-U-B-I-M. The Lubim and Sukim, S-U-K-K-I-M, also mentioned in 2 Chronicles 12.3, may have been pre-Adamic Aboriginal people since they are not mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, or they may have been Adamites who simply came to be called by a different name, especially since Sukim may simply mean tent dweller. However, Foot, P-H-U-T, Foot is listed among all the mingled people in prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 5. So we see that Foot is associated with ancient Libya. The ancient Libyans were absolutely white. They are a topic for another evening. Diodorus Siculus, in his 20th book, writes of Libyans. I'm sorry, we'll get into into the Libyans now. Diodorus Siculus writes of Libyans, not necessarily Lubim, since the word became a geographical term to the Greeks. Africa to the Greeks was divided into two parts, Africa as we know it, Egypt and Libya. That was it. That was Africa to the Greeks. Diodorus Siculus writes of Libyans dwelling on Africa's northern coast in cities and friendly to Carthage. But then also, he writes of nomadic Libyans of the interior who were hostile to Carthage. He does not, however, describe Libyan or Carthaginian physically. For perspective, Virgil, a Latin poet contemporary with Diodorus, called Dido, who was the legendary queen of Carthage, and Dido was a historical figure, 
mentioned in the annals, in the chronicles of ancient Tyre, and mentioned by Josephus, Virgil describes Dido as both blonde and beautiful in his famous poem, The Aheneid. Now, of course, Virgil never met Dido because he lived 800 years after Dido's time. But this does, however, indicate Virgil's idea of what the ideal Phoenician woman may look like. Hesiod, probably a contemporary of Isaiah, writing in his Catalogues of Women, mentions both the boundless black skins and the Libyans. So the Greeks, at a very early time, were familiar with blacks. Never gave them names. Hesiod says that from Epaphus, a son of Kronos, sprang the dark Libyans and the high-souled Ethiopians, but also the underground folk and the feeble pygmies. It is also apparent that by this time Libya was little more than a geographical label and signified all of Africa except Egypt and Ethiopia. Surely the more reliable source, not so fanciful as Hesiod, is the poet Aeschylus, who was a contemporary of Nehemiah, who in his Suppliant Maidens, at lines 277 to 290, lists a group of races of the Mediterranean and compares the likeness of their women to those of the Greek Danans. Among those mentioned are Libyans, Egyptians, and Amazons, very likely indicating a large degree of homogeneity among these peoples. Aeschylus was relating a parody of events which transpired a thousand years before his own time, the migration of Dan from Egypt to Greece. In this very age, we have long had a mixed race called the Berbers, as evidence of a former white civilization in this region. Some of the Berbers are absolutely white. Some of the Berbers are still blonde. Many of the Berbers are clearly Arabs. The settlements of the Phoenicians, Greeks, Romans, and later Germanic invasions of Carthage, and then the rise of Mohammedanism and the subsequent Arab conquests of northern Africa, all did much to further confound an already mingled African world, but there are many historical records that tell us that the original civilizers of northern Africa were absolutely white. Genesis 10.6 Canaan, Ham's youngest son, was cursed by Noah. We see that in Genesis chapter 9, verses 25 through 27. The reason why Canaan and not Ham himself or his other sons was cursed should be apparent by reading Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11. For Canaan was the result of Ham's illicit behavior warranting his special mention in Genesis 9.18. And so Canaan's descendants are later found mixed in with the race of Cain, 
which we see in Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 15, and Deuteronomy chapter 7. Cain was also cursed. There are also, mixed in with the people of Canaan, several races with no biblical genealogy indicating that they are not of Adamic origin. Some of the ites found in Genesis chapters 10 verses 16 to 18 regarding the, the list of the families of the Canaanites, some of those ites also may well be of non-Adamic stock, races that the Canaanites, Canaanites mixed with rather than races which sprung from Canaan. The Hivites seem to be the Horites. The word Hivite being a scribal error in all of its occurrences. This is fully evident by comparing Genesis 36 verses 2, 20, and 30, and also in the Septuagint at Genesis 34, 2, and Joshua 9, 7, where Hivites and Horites are confused. The Resh and the Vav are very similar letters and easily confused in Masoretic Hebrew. Just like the Resh and the Daleth were D, the R and the D. The Horites are called Hurrians by modern anthropologists and archaeologists. They are often considered to be an Oriental race which invaded Mesopotamia at a very early time. Some Horites dwelt at Mount Hor, to which the Edomites the descendants of Esau, who were also cursed, had joined themselves. Mount Hor was later called Mount Seir. Today it is known as Petra in southern Jordan. Heth, listed among the descendants of Canaan, Heth was a progenitor of the people later known as the Hittites, which was possibly a pre-Adamic tribe whom Heth had settled with but they earned his name. And therefore, they were named for him by the rest of the Adamic race. Let me say that this is proved out in history in the name of the Hittite capital. The name of the capital city from the Hittites, of the Hittites, known to us from the, from the Bible and from many inscriptions, is Karkamish. That name is a compound name taken from three Hebrew words. Kar means a city. Carthage represents the Hebrew words for new city. That's what Carthage means when we take it back to its original Hebrew. Kar, Kem, and Ish. Kem is the Hebrew form of the word ham. Ish means people. The Hittite capital, Karkamish, means city of the people of Ham, which proves the Hittite derivation from the, Ham, the, the patriarch Ham. Otherwise, why would they give their city such a name? The name Sidon is found in a city in Canaan of the same name and its environs. 
700 years before the Greeks first wrote of Phoenicians, the Canaanites of Tyre and Sidon and the rest of the coast were driven out by the children of Israel, who then inhabited those cities. The Phoenicians were Israelites. Some of the Canaanites were enslaved. But the people that civilized Phoenicia were certainly the Israelites. The people of Phoenicia's golden age were Israelites. These descendants of Canaan may be traced throughout both the Bible and through history to the people that are called Jews today, although many are also among the Arabs. And because the Arabs and Jews are descended from Canaanites, and because of their travels, they are also found among the olive-skinned peoples of the Mediterranean and the Near East. The New Testament, many passages in the Prophets, and many passages in the history of Josephus can be used to prove this out. In closing this discussion of the descendants of Ham, it may be said that with Nimrod, we certainly have mention of both the first Adamic tyrant, a man who would rule over his kin outside of the laws of Yahweh, and also the first multicultural empire, since the cities mentioned in Genesis 10.10, which Nimrod is said to have conquered, had long existed and may have been already populated with peoples of other races. The Kenites and the Rephaim were certainly in those cities. There is much evidence that the beginnings of Western civilization appeared rather suddenly here in Mesopotamia by which the Genesis chapter 11 account has much credibility once it is realized that this represents the beginnings of the white race, but certainly not all the races. The Shemites, Genesis chapter 10, verses 21 through 31. That the Persians are sprung from Elam, Genesis 10.22, should be evident by the prophets alone. For everywhere that we find Elam in the Bible, we find the Persians fulfilling that role in history. For example, in Isaiah chapters 13 and 21. And we also find consistent mention of Elam along with Madai, or the Medes, at Genesis I'm sorry, at Jeremiah 25:25, in Daniel chapters 5 and 6, and even in Acts chapter 2, verse 9. In his 16th book, Strabo discusses the geography of the Parthian Empire, of which Persia was at that time a part. Susiana was the district along the Tigris, adjacent to the Persian Gulf, and opposite Babylon. Persis bordered Susiana to the east and also held most of the eastern shore of the Persian Gulf. Elamaz is north of Susiana and Media is north of Elamaz. It is not hard to see the name it is not hard to see the name Elam 
in Elamaze, which the Assyrian records call Elamtu, E-L-A-M-T-U. Along with Madai, the Japhetite tribe mentioned in Genesis 10.4, Elam, the, Shem- the Shemetic tribe, formed the Medo-Persian Empire of historic times and the two arms of the image of the beast of Daniel chapter 2. There is much evidence in history that the Persians were white. Somewhere on Christogenia.org, I have excerpts and, and, and um, reproductions of a fragment from Xenophon's Hellenica. I'm sorry, from Xenophon's Anabasis. I also have on Christogenia all of the text of Xenophon's Anabasis. In the Anabasis, Xenophon, who knew the Persians up close and personal, he was a Greek historian who stood in Persia. He sojourned in Persia. That's what the Anabasis is all about. Xenophon was the general of a mercenary Greek army in Persia, which had to fight its way out. Xenophon mentions the ivory-white skin of the Persian people. And he mentions it explicitly. In all of the, um, the Greek marbles, which were at one time painted, and there's research at Harvard University, which is also on Christogenia.org, which proves that they were painted and which reproduces the pigmentation The Persians are painted with white skin that most American women today would die for. That's how white they were. And I'm talking about the men. The Greeks considered them soft. Their skin was so white. Asher, Genesis chapter 10, verse 22. From Asher sprung the nation of the Assyrians, also often called Asher, in the prophets. Asher had a long and tumultuous history before their own rise to empire and their invasions of Israel circa, well, beginning circa 745 B.C. For many centuries, the Assyrians were overshadowed by or under the yoke of the Hittites, the Hurrians of the Mitanni kingdom, or the Sumerians or the Babylonians. It is evident from many of their own inscriptions that the Assyrians absorbed much Hittite blood. The Jewish hook nose is common in their portraits. Yet there must have been many true Assyrians living at the time of the prophet Jonah who urged them to repent, both man and beast, Jonah 3.8. That Lud, Genesis 10.22, is Lydia in western Anatolia, which is modern Turkey, is supported by Isaiah 6619, which is the only other mention of the Shemitic Lud in the Bible. All other mentions of Lud, or by error of the translators, Lydians in the Old Testament are actually the Ludim, the sons of Mizraim in Egypt. Most of the translators and commentators confuse these two different tribes of Lud. Isaiah 66.19 was surely fulfilled concerning Lud when the Cimmerians, descendants of the Israelites whom the Assyrians deported, invaded Anatolia 
destroying much of Phrygia and invading Lydia and Ionia before crossing over into Thrace in Europe at the end of the 7th century BC. Three centuries later, at the beginning of the 3rd century BC, Celtic tribes returned to Anatolia, invaded Greece, and settled in the province later known as Galatia, visited by Paul of Tarsus. These Galatians, to whom he wrote the epistle of that name, Sharon Turner, in his History of the Anglo-Saxons, discusses this Celtic activity in Lydia and the rest of Asia Minor at this time. By the time, by, by the time of Strabo, it is said that there were no Lydians in Lydia speaking the Lydian tongue, but he did attest that there were places where Lydian was still spoken in other parts of Anatolia. The Etruscans, of those in Italy, also called Tyrrhenians and Etrurians, who held Etruria in Italy, the, the portion of Italy above Rome, and parts of the coasts and islands in the western Mediterranean for several centuries, are discussed at length by Theodore Siculus, but he states nothing concerning their origins. However, Herodotus, Strabo, and Tacitus, three great ancient historians, all state that the Etruscans were originally Lydians. There is much historical evidence that the people of Etruria, the famous Etruscans of Italy, migrated from Lydia, although exactly when is uncertain. Archaeologists have doubted the Etruscan-Lydian connection simply because no Etruscan inscriptions have been found in Lydia in Anatolia. However, such inscriptions have been found on islands off the coast of Anatolia. There are also many common words between the two languages which have been identified. Everywhere in the Old Testament did the word Syria or Syrian appear, Aram, A-R-A-M, Genesis 10.22, is the Hebrew word from which they are derived. It is apparent that the Greek words, Surya and Taurus, which are Syria and Tyre, the city, have at various times both been derived from the same Hebrew word, Tesor, Tesor, T-S-O-R. It's a difficult word to say while still pronouncing both consonants, T and S. That word is the ancient name for the city, the coastal city, Tyre. That word gives us both Surya and Taurus. There does seem to be confusion concerning the name Syria in ancient times, or possibly the Greeks purposely used the term to describe a wider area than just the land of Aram. Herodotus counts Palestine as part of Syria, and he calls the Judahites who fought against Necho at Megiddo Syrians, for which we can compare Herodotus' book 2, chapter 159, with 2 Chronicles, chapter 35, verse 20. Herodotus also calls Syrians certain Cappadocians who dwell about the rivers Thermodon and Parthenius, far to the north. Strabo explains that the Cappadocians 
have to the present time been called white Syrians, and they were, but Strabo also interjects, as though some Syrians were black. And so we may deduce that all of the Syrians known to Strabo were white so far as he was concerned. Many writers, including Strabo, mistook the Assyrians for Syrians, certainly due to the similarity of the names in Greek. Originally, Aram was centered in Damascus. The Greeks spoke of a Syrian named Kinirus. He's mentioned in the Iliad of Homer, who conquered Cyprus and had Paphos for a capital. Yet most commentators have had Paphos as an early Phoenician colony. Josephus, in his antiquities, has Cyprus as subjects of Tyre just prior to the Assyrian invasions of Israel. Ezekiel 27, verse 6, has the Israelite tribe of Asher in Cyprus, and Tyre, the city, was in Asher's territory. The language of Aram, which is known to us as Aramaic, became the dominant language of trade in the Near East until it was supplanted by Greek after the time of Alexander. During the period of the Persian Empire, Aramaic, not Persian, not Farsi, was the lingua franca, the language of trade and diplomacy. The Babylonians of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, the New Babylonian Empire, which, which became, which gained the hegemony over Mesopotamia in the late 7th century AD, they were Chaldeans. And the Chaldeans were said to have conquered Babylon and to have been a tribe from Syria. And therefore, the lingua franca at that period was also Aramaic. Jacob took wives of Laban the Syrian, as Laban was called, although Laban was a Hebrew by race, a descendant of one of Abraham's brothers, which leads us to discuss Arphaxad, or Arphaxad, Genesis 10.22. Arphaxad was the ancestor of the Hebrews. There is no land surviving into the historic period which can be identified explicitly with Arphaxad. Abraham, though sojourning in Chaldea when he appears in the Genesis record, obviously had Haran in far northern Syria for a homeland, a town which shared its name with both a brother and a grandfather of Abraham. This land was also once called Padan Aram. It's called Padanaram many times in the Genesis account. But it may have been the original land of Arphaxad. Not long after Abraham left Haran, as we see in the Genesis account, 
The area was overrun by the Amorites and then by the Hurrians and the Hittites and was a little later part of the Hurrian Mitanni kingdom, which we see the Hurrians in the Bible, are the Hivites of Genesis 10, and they are a Canaanite people. The name Eber, which we see in Genesis 10.24, comes from a word meaning across, or the opposite side. The usage is similar to the Greek words paran and paratus. The phrase pa paratic case oikumenes, or the opposite ends of the inhabited world, was used by Paul at Romans 10.18. Similarly, Tacitus used the phrase, the ends of the earth, in the Agricola, in chapters 12, 24, and 33, to describe the location of Britain and Ireland. Homer used a similar phrase in the Odyssey to describe the other end of the Mediterranean, that part which was about Spain. It is at the other side of the inhabited world that we find so many ancient names like that of Eber, the first Hebrew, the word Hebrew being a form in English of Iberi, or the people of Eber. Iberia, which is now known as Spain and Portugal. The Ebro River in Spain, Hibernia in Ireland, and the Hebrides, which are islands off the coast of Scotland all have that Eber name in common. Much later, some of the lands occupied by the deported Israelites, who were later known as the Scythians, held similar names. And we see that in the Iberia, which was described by all the Greeks and Romans as south of the Caucasus Mountains, and by the Hebrus River in Illyria, as Diodorus Siculus mentions in his 19th book. None of this is coincidental. The sons of Eber were Peleg and Joktan, Genesis 10.25. Some writers, such as Perry Edward Powell, who wrote a book called Father Abraham's Children, associate the Pelasgian Greeks with Peleg. At first, I would deny the association, since Pelasgian does seem to be a compound of the Greek words pelis, which means near, and geis, which means land. And so, as they were to the Ionians, neighbors, people of the near land, just as the Spartans simply called the Greeks about Sparta, who were not Spartans, perioikoi, or neighbors. Yet Strabo says that the Pulaski were, by the Attic people, the Attic people being the Ionians, the people of Athens, called Pelargi, which means storks. The compilers add, because they were wanderers, and like birds, resorted to those places whither chance led them. It is fifth book. Elsewhere, Strabo cites Greek writers who claim that the Pelasgians came from Thessaly. And there are people whom Strabo calls Pelagonians are also found. So there may be some merit to Powell's assertion, because Pelagonians is much closer to Peleg. The Pelasgians are said to have spread throughout the whole of Greece in ancient times. Strabo says that in his fifth book. 
And when the Danans came from Egypt, they were also called by the name Pelasgians, according to Strabo, in his eighth book. The apparently peaceful reception of the Danans in Greece by the original Pelasgians may well be explained if those inhabitants of Greece before the arrival of Dan were also Hebrews, which the Pelasgians may well have been. Joktan, Genesis 10.25, means he will be made little. And so his name is a prophecy by itself, and his race was surely absorbed by the indigenous populations which are called Arabs by us and by themselves today. The word Arab in Hebrew means mixed. When an Arab uses the word Arab, he admits that he's mixed. While several of Jacques descendants' names may be identified, some of them tentatively with places in Arabia, two stand out in merit discussion here. Sheba, Genesis 10.28, was a mountainous area of what is now Yemen. There's an article on this, Archaeology Odyssey, Excavating the Land of Sheba, November-December 2001, page 44. The queen of Sheba, who we see in 1 Kings chapter 10, who visited Solomon, was called the queen of the south by Christ in Matthew 12.42 and Luke 11.31. And she was, for all of the circumstances of her mention, surely of the Adamic race. Strabo later mentions the Sabians in company with Nabatahi and Arabs. And we see that these people became Arabs at a very early time. Ophir, O-P-H-I-R. Ophir, Genesis 10.29, was surely somewhere on the eastern coast of Africa, south of Ethiopia. This is fully evident from the account of goods obtained from Ophir, given in 1 Kings chapters 9 and 10 in the Bible and from the fact that the place was reached from a port on the Red Sea, which was Ezion Geber in the King James Version. It's also evident from the name Ophir itself. For the name Ophir, O-P-H-I-R in the English Bible, is certainly the same as the Latin name Afer. A-F-E-R, which preceded Africa as the Roman name for the continent. Although the, although the Greeks did not know the names Ophir or Afer, at least in their writings, they had the continent divided, I'm sorry, into but three districts. I mentioned two before, Ethiopia, Egypt, and Libya. They were the three divisions of Africa in Greek writings. The Greeks did have a word, Aphros, which meant foam, kind of fitting. Other similar Greek words are aphron, which means without sense, crazed, frantic, silly, and foolish, kind of fitting. And aphrosune, which means folly or thoughtlessness or senselessness. That kind of also fits. 
While many may see the similarity of these words as coincidences, I am not so sure that I believe in such coincidences, that they are coincidences at all. Also, it is evident that the derivation of the word Africa from Afer in Latin actually follows a convention found in Greek for declensions of the genitive case. For instance, we have curious, which means Lord, and curiacus, which is of the Lord. We have foinus, which means blood red, and foinicus, which is of blood red, or reddish, or Phoenician. So Afer and Africa follow that same pattern of the Greek declension of nouns. It should also not be thought of as merely coincidental that the Greek names for Europe, Libya, and the Roman name for Africa can all be shown to have come from the Hebrew tongue. While searching for the word of our English word, black. I came across the Hebrew words, balak, which means to annihilate, and balag, which means to break off or to invade with destruction. Those definitions coming from Strong's Concordance. The Greek word blacks, of which the genitive form is blakas, means slack in mind and body, stupid, adult. I don't think these are coincidences either. Whatever happened to Ophir, we certainly have no record of, and especially since the Romans never wandered into Africa beyond Ethiopia, although they surely knew of the land there. However, the continent is obviously named after them. So we have the Shemites and the Hebrews, and here it should be evident that these terms today have been misappropriated by people to whom they do not belong. The Shemites and the Hebrews were all originally white. There were, by the Septuagint chronology, nearly 1,800 years between the time of the flood of Noah and the writing of the Old Testament, and about 800 more years to the time of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and to the advent of written records among the Greeks. Homer and Hesiod, it can be shown, were contemporaries of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. All throughout this time, the various tribes of Adamites were constantly seeking new and better land throughout the known world and points beyond, naming new places and adopting those names. With so few written records, how difficult it is to determine their movements. But we do have plenty of information to determine who they were. Homer, the earliest Greek writer known to us, and whom Strabo considered ex arches or from the beginning, for the validity of his records, and the first geographer, being a contemporary of the biblical prophets, wrote rather late in the history of Israel. Here I would like to discuss just what the Greeks and the Italians look like. 
that the Greeks and the Italians were in ancient times fully homogenous with the Caucasians of Northern Europe, as most of them appear today, and certainly not with the current olive-skinned inhabitants of at least the southern portions of those regions. I can't say that all of Italy is, is non-white, but much of southern Italy is. Along with most of the rest of southern Europe, is fully evident everywhere in their art and literature. Among Homer's oft-repeated epithets were Hera with the snow-white arms and gray-eyed Athena. Achilles is described as having golden-red hair. When Menelaus, the Greek king, was shot with an arrow, removal of his clothing for treatment revealed the ivory-white flesh of his thigh. In the Odyssey, Menelaus is described as the red-haired captain. Describing Odysseus, the Greek hero, Homer tells us that he had crisping hair and curls all but golden red. Hesiod, in his catalog of women, sings of golden-haired Menelaus, the Greek gold having a high copper content. It was also described as reddish. The Homeric hymn to Demeter tells of golden-haired Demeter. Selene is white-armed and bright-tressed. Polynices is described as golden-haired in the Thebaid of the Epic Cycle. The Trojan Ganymedes is also golden-haired, according to the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite. These descriptions, and many others like them, survived throughout all Greek and Roman literature, and were used of Greeks and Romans well into the Christian era. They were also used of the early Phoenicians, the Phoenician women of Thebes in Greece. Thebes in Greece was actually a Phoenician city. Thessaly in Greece was settled, to a great extent, by Phoenicians. Thebes in Greece, the women were said to be fair and blonde as they are described in the tragic poetry of both Euripides and the Aeschylus and in the later works of the Roman poet Virgil. The archaeological record fully supports these descriptions. Hundreds, maybe even thousands, of murals and mosaics from Greco-Roman territories display tall, fair, usually but not always sun-tanned men, and tall, fair, lily-white women. Greek men, like the Phoenicians, Romans, and Hebrews, as we see in John 21:17, for instance, were typically naked while working outdoors, so the men were always tanned. Women spent far less time outside, always fully clothed, so they were always very, very white. Josephus also attests that Judeans and Greeks were indistinguishable, except that Judeans were circumcised. That's in chapter 5 of the 12th book of Antiquities. Of course, the biblical record also agrees with this. David, in Samuel chapters 16 and 17, is described as fair and red-headed. Solomon, in chapter 5 of the Song of Solomon, is described as having ivory-white skin and eyes like pools of water and raven hair. Hector of Troy was also described as a very white man with raven hair, black hair. 
In Lamentations 4-7, at the end of the book of Jeremiah, we see that the people of Jerusalem were as white as milk. Of Noah, in 1 Enoch, chapter 105, Noah is described as being the whitest baby ever seen. Although there certainly are Arab and olive skin types found among the archaeological records in the Roman era and in lands controlled by Rome, even places in Italy itself, these are but a small minority and not at all representative of the originators of Mediterranean or Near Eastern civilization. Most of the olive skin types in Roman art are actually Egyptian or Arab slaves or former slaves. They are not at all representative of the general populations until long after the fall of Rome and the later Islamic conquests, where we have a now olive-skinned Sicily and a now olive-skinned Portugal. The artwork of the Byzantine culture in the East reflects a predominantly white society which survived until the conquest of its territories, first by Arabs and then later by Turks. Salvation in Israel. The word salvation appears often in the Old Testament in promises to Israel, and it is actually intended to mean preservation or safety, as we could tell from the common dictionary definitions of the words. Israel was promised to be preserved in this world and not only in the spiritual afterworld. Both promises hold true. But preserved from what? The answer to that lies first in the prophets and the foretold destruction of the nations surrounding Israel and Palestine and in Psalm 2 which foretold that Israel would conquer the other nations, the Genesis chapter 10 nations, and then in prophecies such as those found in Daniel chapter 8, Revelation chapter 9, and the plagues described there, which destroy much of the Adamic world unto this very day. Egypt and Ethiopia had been overrun by black Nubians in the 8th century B.C. Assyria, already a nation bastardized with Horite and Hittite blood, was destroyed by the Scythian Israelites at the end of the 7th century B.C., after which the Israelite Cimmerians overran all of Anatolia, destroyed Phrygia, pillaged Lydia, pillaged Ionia, and crossed into Thrace. In the 6th century B.C., the entire Near East was conquered by Persia, and then in the 4th century by the Greeks, and in the 3rd century by the Parthians, and in the 1st century by Rome, which competed with Parthia for territory. All during this time, the Scythian and the Celtic Israelites, the Scythians, the Saka, and the Cimmerians, along with the Gepetai tribes, who also escaped to the north, were multiplying and spreading themselves throughout northern Europe and also many parts of Asia. By the time of Christ, Israelites had conquered and come to inhabit all of the known world, as the Romans in the West, 
the Parthians in the east, and there's the Germanic Scythians in the north. While there were Gepetite peoples mixed amongst them all, and preponderantly, more preponderantly amongst the Romans of the south and the west, they were all, all those lands what were ruled over by ancient Israelites, by people who descended from the people of Israel. Also by this time, except for perhaps the Ionian Greeks at Athens who were under Roman rule, and the Sarmatians or Slavs and related tribes of Northern Europe, who were all Gepetites, none of the other Genesis chapter 10 nations, even as early as the time of Christ, had any legitimate claim to any longer being a nation if they were to be found at all. All of them are now lost to history. All of the original white nations of Africa are lost to history. All of the original white nations of the Eurasian steppe are lost to history because they're all now mixed. Since the fall of Rome, most of the formerly white Roman world has been lost. Africa, Mesopotamia, Spain, Sicily were all overrun by Arabs, destroying much of the Adamic blood of those regions. After the Arab conquests arose, the Turks from the east, who overran Parthia, Anatolia, which is today Turkey, Greece, and the Balkans. While the Turks were destroying much of southern Russia, I'm sorry, while the Turks were destroying the Adamic blood of Greece and the Byzantine Empire, the Mongols invaded Russia, conquering much of southern Russia to Ukraine and subjecting also as far as modern Romania. While the Russians managed to defeat and drive out the Mongols in the 15th century, they didn't drive out all of the Mongol blood. Some of it remained. Many of those people are mixed. The Turks held Greece into the 19th century, and most Greeks today should probably be considered Turks or Arabs. Muslim tribes still inhabit the Balkans. All of the western Mongol areas, which were formerly all white, adopted the Islamic religion early in the second millennium. And so not only have all of the regions of the former Genesis chapter 10 Adamic nations been overrun and destroyed by the alien invasions, but also many of the children of Israel were also lost in those invasions. Today, the white race in Europe is again being invaded by Arabs and Turks, and now we beckon them. We allow them to do it. We call it immigration, and we consider it legal. It's really a continuation of the same old war. Well, I pray to have put Genesis chapter 10 in perspective. 
And by that, we can understand our Bibles a lot more clearly. The nations who are to be blessed in Abraham's seed are these Genesis 10 white Adamic nations and none other. As we see, the ancient Egyptians didn't even consider the other races as people. Neither should we consider the non-Adamic races properly as people. And neither did we until the Jew was allowed to run rampant in our society and change its definitions. With that, I will thank you for listening. The topic next week is to be announced. I will be back here next Friday with Mark chapter 4. Thank you and praise Yahweh.